One of the topics that we constantly debate in our society, especially when events like 9-11 or the Virginia Tech shooter or the Beltway sniper grabs the headlines, is how do we protect ourselves from violence? And whenever our society is having these debates about how to prevent one sort of violence or another, there is almost always someone who interjects into the debate that the number of deaths caused by terrorism or violent crime is far less than the number of deaths that are caused by nonviolent means. For example, cancer or heart disease or drunk driving. Their point is that the amount of anxiety we devote to worrying about violent death or injury or the amount of resources that we allocate to preventing them is all out of proportion to what we devote to nonviolent causes of death or injury. Think of the amount of money that the TSA or the NSA spends trying to prevent terrorist attacks. And some would argue that if we spent that even just a portion of that amount of money on certain types of medical research or even on making highways safer, we would save far more lives and prevent far more suffering than we would by focusing so much on terrorism. Now, my point is not to argue about how or where our society makes the trade-offs between protecting against different types of risks, but only to point out that our society obviously regards violent death, in other words, death because of another's intentional malice, as much worse than death from other causes. And this seems to have some empirically verifiable basis in our psychology. As has been well established by medical studies, the state of our mind influences the state of our health and our ability to heal and recover from injuries. And it's interesting that in studies done of people who are injured, it has been shown that those who are injured by an intentional assault heal slower than those who are injured by someone else's mere negligence. And those injured through their own fault or through a so-called act of God healed the fastest of all, perhaps because they had no one to blame. Thomas Hobbes, the 17th century English philosopher, was, along with Machiavelli, the seminal political philosopher of modernity. He upended everything that people thought about the nature of man and about political society that had been built up by 16 centuries of Christian reflection. Because what Hobbes said is that the nature of man is not to be virtuous and to attain beatitude. Rather, man is merely a, sh a machine that desires to keep on ticking, to avoid his own death particularly violent death at the hands of another. Man is essentially a creature motivated by fear. Hence, political society is grounded in fear. And so rejecting the idea that the purpose of society is to help, is to help men attain salvation, Hobbes said that the only purpose of government is to restrain men from injuring and killing one another. Although this insight has been taken as the harbinger of modernity, it is, in a sense, just a regression to an ancient, pre-Christian understanding of things, which makes sense because Hobbes rejected Christianity and was, for all intents and purposes, an atheist. 
If we look at the Old Testament, by and large, we see an enduring fear of death. Because in the Jewish understanding, although they had faith in God, death was, according to their faith, still the end of things. As it says in Ecclesiastes, For the living know that they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Or Psalm 115, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down in silence. Death was bad. It was only in this passage from Isaiah that we just read, which is called the suffering servant, that there is any sense that death can be redemptive. Isaiah was given a vision of the suffering and death of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and what he would undergo. But even then, it was mostly conceived in terms of how Christ's suffering would redeem Israel in an earthly sense. There was less sense that the Messiah would conquer death itself. Yet there is a hint there if we read closely. It says, because of his affliction, he shall see the light in the fullness of days. Jesus Christ conquered death. Not just death, but even the fear of dying. Because the cross was the Roman instrument of power. It was the way they instilled fear in the peoples that they conquered. As many experts will tell you, it is quite literally the worst death imaginable. If you are crucified, you have to hold up your own body weight using your legs, which have been nailed to the cross. So your only purchase is the nail that has been driven through your feet. And as your legs get weaker and you can't hold yourself up, you suffocate. As your weight sinks, your arms are stretched out to your back and to your sides so tightly that your diaphragm is constricted. So you can't take a breath. Essentially, you suffocate. You choke to death. But Jesus suffered that torture willingly. We see a demonstration of his power. He asked the soldiers and the guards and the chief priests who came out to the garden to arrest him who they were looking for. When they replied, Jesus, the Nazarene, he replied, I am. And they were quite literally knocked off their feet. Jesus was not forced to the cross by the hands of men. He was the son of God. His I am echoed the Father's I am who am that he spoke to Moses. They had no power over him but what he gave them. But our Christ willingly allowed himself to be arrested and to suffer and to die on the cross, to suffer the worst death imaginable, not for his sake, but for ours. It says in the second reading in the letter to the Hebrews, Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And when he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Christ was already perfect, and he certainly knew obedience. But to work true forgiveness of our sins because of our weakness, he had to suffer. He had to be tested to the limits of his human nature in order to redeem humanity itself. And in doing so, he gave us a model of conquering death because he rises from the grave and ascends back to the Father. 
he shows us that death no longer has any power for those who reside in the Father's grace. I said earlier that the, potter, the politics of modernity is essentially Hobbesian, the politics of fear, the fear of death, especially violent death, because we can no longer echo the words of Jesus to Pilate, my kingdom does not belong to this world. Those are the words of the great saints and martyrs, so desperately needed in our time. And the supreme irony of living in a culture that fears death so much because it no longer sees any greater end to life is that it leads precisely to the culture of death that Pope John Paul and Pope Benedict and Pope Francis have spoken of so eloquently. Our modern society's fear of death and suffering unto death does not cause us to regard life as all the more precious. Rather, we commit all sorts of atrocities against the dignity of human life in a desperate attempt to cling to some remnant of it for ourselves. We kill others that we might not be inconvenienced, that we might not have to suffer. We live by the words of Caiaphas, who had counseled the Jews that it was better that one man should die rather than the people. We believe that somehow we can be saved by the suffering of others rather than our own suffering that we can save ourselves by petty selfishness and by calculated sin. Instead of recognizing that after Christ has suffered for us, our only, only salvation is to embrace the cross ourselves in an act of love, as did Mary and the other woman and the, the disciple whom Jesus loved who stood at the foot of the cross. Too often we lose hope that there is any meaning beyond the grave, we have exchanged the peace of our Lord that he had even unto death and instead live in the fear and anxiety of those who are under perpetual assault. Desperate to cling to the false assurances that the world offers that somehow, some way, we can escape suffering and death. But thankfully, the cross always refreshes itself, even today. For we have the example of the Christians being daily martyred in the Middle East. Yes, this is evil, and of course it should stop. But Christ will triumph one way or another, because death itself has been conquered. As one Coptic bishop in Egypt, whose nephews and cousins were beheaded by ISIS, has said, I am happy for my relatives. They had faith in God. They had faith in Jesus Christ. And that is what matters. They died for their faith. They died for Christianity. This is the faith that all of us need to have. There's an old Japanese proverb that was taught to the samurai to strengthen their resolve in battle. It goes like this. Whatever the trials or dangers, even hell under the upraised sword, remain calm and remember the doctrine imparted to you by your teacher. Because a noted verse reads... For the lotus flower to fail is to rise to the surface. This is, in a nutshell, a close analogy to the theology of the cross. But as Christians, we have no need to look at a lotus flower as our model. Instead, we look to the cross. Behold the man. <laughs>